Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Good morning, church. It's good to be back. I send greetings from my family. The, the mask here and, and me being further away from you is uh, earlier last week, Mercy uh, tested positive for COVID. I have not t- tested positive for COVID yet, and I've been very healthy. Um, but just as an extra measure of protection, I'm back here. So feel far from you. This is weird. Um, my family's sad. Um, bunch of extroverts we are, and they haven't been with you for about a month at this point, uh, missing this week. Uh, we were in New, uh, Massachusetts, and the Lord did great things. Thank you for praying. Um, it's a really dry, spiritually dry, dead area um, in New England, and the Lord moved mightily at the camp. So I got to preach through select passages in the Gospel of John and got to see a number of students put their trust in Jesus for the first time. One cool story is that um, one girl, she's 15, she um, is practicing Wiccan, and even at the age of 15, she's transitioned her gender three times already. Grows up, she's grown up in a really, really broken family without parents, and um, uh, the first night of me preaching, she stormed out of the meeting and told her counselor she, she wants nothing to do with me and hear nothing I have to say. And the Holy Spirit started to work. And um, by the middle of the week, she was taking notes. And by the end of the week, she was one of the first to run up and declare Jesus as Lord in front of all of her friends. So it's sweet to serve and um, preach there. And uh, a lot of cool things happened. Half, one, one youth group, over half of his youth group, the, the pastor came up to me in tears, just came to Jesus. Uh, many of them struggling with their identity, struggling with Jesus and the truth of God. One student shared publicly to everyone he finally trusts God's word as God's word and his authority over his life. Um, one told me that they've never been more comfortable being uncomfortable in sermons. Um, I preached an hour on average, and the kids ate it up, and it was a really powerful time for the staff and the 
counselor, so it's good to be with you back. And then I had a week with my family in Georgia visiting them. So back here, so we're going through the book of Jonah for the next four weeks. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? Did you raise your hands? Okay, good amount. If you're not, so glad you're here um, and visiting our church. We're so glad. We hope that you're encouraged and you meet Jesus, the story, the person that Jonah points to ultimately. Now, here's a, another question. How many of you have studied carefully the book of Jonah? Raise your hand. Okay, less hands there. And that, I think, is problematic. Because we often have stories that you grew up with that you're familiar with and you heard about. And the problem with that is that you often miss the biggest points. You know, when you think about Jonah, we often think of, finish the blank, Jonah and the whale, which is problematic because it's not even a whale and the and the fish, the big fish, only is in three sentences in the entire book. So you got this one character, a minor character, that God ordained to do something for three sentences, and now it becomes the headliner of the whole book and what we talk about to our kids. Thus, kids, you shouldn't disobey God, or he will swallow you with a whale, right? Like, that's our very, very low level. And don't get me wrong, the book of Jonah is simple enough for a youth to understand. I read through chapters one and two with my son Elijah yesterday, and he was able to pick up a lot of the main points. But let me tell you this. Make no mistake, the book of Jonah is an adult story. Simple enough for kids, but the depths of this book are for all people. This book actually solves and answers many of the great issues of our time. It actually gives us the solution to racism, which is a big deal right now in our culture, is it not? It gives us the solution to so many of the problems that plague every one of us. It teaches us about man, but most importantly, it teaches us about the heart of God. Jonah is not a book about Jonah, ultimately. It's about God and his heart. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to progressively know more and more about God and what he is like. Now let's start off with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of Yahweh, I'm going to give an explanation why I'm saying Yahweh, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for, why? Their evil has come up against you before me. So the book of Jonah abruptly starts with a bunch of characters that most of us are not familiar with because the reminder that that should tell us is that the book of Jonah, although very applicable for us and for us, was not originally written to us. So we need to be careful readers and do the hard work to understand that we are crossing cultures, we're crossing geography, we're crossing language, it's written in Hebrew, and we're analyzing it as a true historical accounts, but we have to do some work. So let me highlight three characters that I'm going to give just a brief description, and throughout this series, we're going to go deeper into these themes. The thing about the book of Jonah, though, it's there's not one main point, but a few main themes that we're going to progressively build upon. So first of all, who's, what's Nineveh? What's Nineveh? Where is Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. It would be the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And at this time, the Assyrian Empire was the bad boy. It was the 
superpower power of the world. Now, we'll get more into the atrocities of Assyria, but Assyria was not your friendly neighbor. Assyria was called by some a terrorist state. It was a mortal enemy of Israel. Many Israelites knew friends and family and had friends and family who died at the hands of the Assyrians. This was likened to how the average Ukrainian would feel towards Vladimir Putin right now. Okay, so trying to use a modern day illustration for, for us to grasp the animosity and the feelings the average Israelite would have towards the Ninevites. It would be a, we're talking about atrocities and evils hard for us to even comprehend, which I'll get to in a uh, future sermon. Now, second, we're going to hear this word, the Lord. For those of you who are not familiar, anytime you see in your English Bible, the Lord in all caps, we're talking about the name of God, Yahweh, his special covenant name that sums up all of his beautiful attributes, but that's only for his covenant people or those who are seeking him. This is going to be important that I'm going to get into overall. This Yahweh is not geographically located. Like, you go to this region of the world, and that's where Yahweh reigns, but he's the creator of all. He reigns over all, rules over all, and is the judge of all. We'll see more about the heart and the character of Yahweh. Finally, who's Jonah? Well, Jonah, believe it or not, is not just only in the book of Jonah, but is in 2 Kings chapter 14. You don't need to turn there, but you can write it down. 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah was a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. Now, King Jeroboam II had one of the most prosperous reigns in northern Israelite history. They took back many boundaries that were taken from them. And you know who was one of the prophets that prophesied that that would happen? Guess who? Jonah. Jonah prophesied to the king that the nation of Israel would take back a lot of the land back almost like into the glory days of David and Solomon. But if you read 2 Kings, you'll see that Jeroboam II was one of the most wicked kings out there. He did not fear God. He did not love God. And we see no evidence that Jonah ever called the nation to repent. But Jonah loved to prophesy about the good things that can happen to Israel. So Israel was physically prospering and yet spiritually bankrupt. How many of you guys know that you can be physically prospering and yet spiritually bankrupt? Israel was prospering in every way that they thought mattered except the most important way. They were spiritually bankrupt from God. They were worshiping idols. They, their hearts were turned away from God. And so Jonah was happy to prophesy about the prosperity of his nation that he loved and yet did not call them to the God of the nation. So this is where Jonah is coming from. He's a deeply patriotic prophet who prioritized that you'll see even in the background of 2 Kings, but also we'll see later on throughout the book, he prioritizes nation and the good of Israel over Yahweh himself. So God is going to take this very patriotic prophet and call him to his worst enemy. And in doing so, we're going to learn about God's heart, Jonah's heart, and ours. So let's go back to verse 1 and 2. 
<laughs> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come before me. Did, does that strike you a little different now? You're taking this patriotic prophet and calling him to go to his worst enemies. Say, what, God? Go to my mortal enemies? Now, I want to make two points here. There's a lot of points to make. But first, God's message of judgment to the Ninevites is a mercy. It's a blessing. Warnings, listen, are a grace that is undeserved. As I shared, this is a wicked country. They have done atrocities. They're a terrorist state. They don't deserve a warning. They deserve judgment. And you will believe that. You, your hearts will all cry out for judgment against the Ninevites in a few weeks when I get into some of the chronicles, the details of how wicked they were. But warnings are mercy. How, why do I say that? Well, let me give a silly example. But imagine in the winter, which seems like it will come in like a month, when the winter comes and we start playing on frozen lakes and ponds, one of the dangers is thin ice. And imagine you're playing on this ice, and while you're playing, someone comes out of their house and starts yelling at you, get off my ice! You look at this old crotchety man and you say, get over yourself, this is just water, and you're just mocking him. And as the, the man gets closer and you could understand his words, he starts yelling out and starts saying, listen, the ice here is thin. People die here all the time. Now, at first, offensive, because no one of us likes to tell us we're wrong or we're in trouble. How dare you, old man? I'll teach you, right? But, but, but once you start to comprehend this is a warning to preserve you from perishing, then all of a sudden you realize that this warning is actually mercy. It's a blessing. It's a gift to you. And what we're going to see is that God sending Jonah to the wicked Ninevites is a profound mercy, a profound blessing and a grace that they do not deserve. I want to highlight a second point here. The text says, their evil has come before me. Do you see that? Their evil. Why should Jonah cry out against this wicked nation? Because for their evil has come before God. Please note this statement. No evil has been ever overlooked by God. I know that in the moment of trial, the moment of abuse, the moment of wickedness that has been done to us, we can feel, God, oh God, where are you? Are you a God that cares? Are you there, God? Do you see what is happening? But what this text shows us is that there is no evil ever done against us or by us that is overlooked by God. He sees it all. And that should give us tremendous hope and peace for all of us have had varying degrees of evil done towards us. And also, it should sober, sober us because all of us here have had various degrees of evil done by us. This God does not overlook sin. He's a God that is, his justice is inflexible. He doesn't cook the books. He doesn't change things based off of who you are. He is true, and he sees it all. And in his good, perfect timing, not ours, he will judge every wrong. I want to highlight, finally, before we go on to verse 3, 
this language that calls out to Jonah. What does he says, say to Jonah? He says, arise, go to Nineveh. Keep that in mind. In the Hebrew, kum, kum, lek, Nineveh. Rise, go to Nineveh. Keep that in mind. I'm not using Hebrew just to sound fancy. There's a purpose behind that. Verse 3. Now let's see how Jonah responds to God's call to him. Remember Jonah's context? He's a patriotic prophet. He hates those Ninevites. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of Yahweh. There's a lot of repetition, repetition here if you pick that up, and I'll, I'll share in a moment why. But Jonah is supposed to go 500 miles north um, east, east to Nineveh, 500 miles. Instead, he literally picks the furthest city known in the known world for Jonah in the opposite direction, 1,500 miles west from what God is calling him to do. So it's like God calls you and says, hey, go to Russia. And you're like, Hawaii? Okay, right? So it's like literally the opposite direction, 2,000 miles away from the place God calls Jonah to. And what we are introduced right here in this little piece that we're going to see expanded throughout this book is a significant conflict in the book of Jonah. And the conflict is, is that Jonah opposes the wisdom and authority of God. Jonah, this good prophet or seemingly good patriotic prophet of Israel, has a different vision of reality than God. He has a different vision of the good life, of what is equitable and right and good and just. And therefore, when God calls him to do something, Jonah doesn't say, yes, Lord. He says, no, Lord, I'm doing my own thing because I think I know better. This is like me and like you. Often we think if we can't think of a good reason behind something God would tell us to do, then there must not be a good reason. We often assume that if we could figure out why God would say something in the Bible or why God would orchestrate something in our life, then if we can only discern it, then therefore it is okay. We give God the, the pat on the back. Oh, yeah, you're doing a good job, God. You know what you're doing. I'm 35, I watch YouTube, I know stuff. Listen, none of us here knows more than 1% of all that there is to know in the universe. And yet, because, even though we're so ignorant, we're so quick to be in the judgment seat to tell God how he should rule the world. And I heard this line the other day that was so profound. I've heard many people put it, but it hit me again. If you were to know all that God knew, and if you were to have the same heart that God has, then you would do what God does 100 out of 100 times. And yet, because we don't know all that God knows and we don't have his same heart, therefore, our vision of the world and the good life and how this world should be run is often at conflict with God's. And we're either going to humble ourselves under his wisdom and tell, let him tell us what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is our purpose, and so forth, or we're going to subvert the authority and tell him what is right by our disobedience. See, one of the biggest lies that Jonah falls into and that all of us have fallen into, when I say all of us, I'm not using that just in rhetoric. I mean all of us, including me, have fallen into the lie that true freedom means doing whatever we want. The lie that sin, sin 
makes us believe that we have a better idea of what is good and just, and that freedom means doing whatever we want, not whatever God wants. And this happens in the garden. Everything always goes back to the garden. If you don't understand Genesis 1 through 3, which we're about to do a series through Genesis 1 through 12 or 11, which one is it? 12. It's going to help you understand the rest of the Bible. And this is what happens in the garden, right? God gives Adam and Eve a million yeses, a million blessings, generously bestowing upon them intimacy with him and blessings and enjoying good gifts. And in all of this, the serpent comes and twists God's heart and his words. God is holding back on you. He doesn't really love you. He's stingy. He's selfish. He doesn't really know what will make you happiest. He doesn't want you to compete with him. Take things into your own hands, Sam, or insert your name, and, and Adam and Eve fall into this lie. And as a result, all of us, because of this fall, we all have twisted hearts, warped hearts, and we are born not with trusting hearts, but every one of us are born with skeptical hearts towards the goodness and wisdom of God. We are in conflict with God's vision for our lives and the world and our vision of our life and world. We're going to unpack this further as we go on, but let's look at the big focus of this section, this line. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. We're going to focus on this for a moment, which is actually hilarious when you think about it, because how do you flee from a God that is omnipresent, that is everywhere? But what we understand is that presence in the Bible is spoken of in two primary ways. There is a presence in the sense that God, no matter where you go, he is there. He's omnipresent. But there is a special presence that the scriptures speak about. God's manifest, favoring presence. The word for presence here in Hebrew is literally from his face. From the face of Yahweh. Jonah is fleeing from the face of Yahweh. Let me try to share two quick illustrations that will woefully, inadequately share what this means, but maybe help a little bit. What do you do when you have severely let down someone you love and respect? What do you do with their face? Do you want to make eye contact with them? No. Look down like a dog, right? Just look down, look away. We don't want to look into their eyes of hurt or disappointment. What also do you do if you disrespect someone, don't love someone, and they're trying to talk to you? What will we often, shouldn't do this, but what could you do? Hey, I'm talking to you, Sam. Face me. Look in my eyes. Nope. I disrespect you. I'm turning away from you. I don't want to see your face. And so throughout scripture, we see this concept developed in many, many books where God's people, when they're walking in the light, obeying the Father, obeying Yahweh, they are like face to face before him. His pleasure, his favor is shining upon them and they're beholding him. But whenever they say, no, 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 God, I know better. I know what will make me happy. I've read some stuff. I've read tweets. I watch TikTok, right? I watch a National Geographic documentary. I know stuff. I'm going to tell you what you are, tell you what my life is. And when that happens, what, what is literally happening is that they're turning their backs on God's face. They're severing the unity that should be there, the intimacy, and they're, they're turning their face away from the face of God. 
On the other hand, whenever we turn back to God, we give him our sin. God, I don't even understand fully, but I trust you. I turn, I give this to you. I confess you. What are we doing? We're turning and we're facing him. And then his light, the light of his face shines upon us. Jonah does not want to obey God. He doesn't want God himself, so he's removing himself from God's presence. See, this passage doesn't say the word sin, but this is the essence of sin. You see how this is so much more potent than the lame kind of definition we give to sin sometimes in the church? Sin is missing the mark. Or in our modern day culture, sin is not living your best life. Not loving yourself well. No, sin is fundamentally turning your face away from the God, your creator who loves you. See, did you know that you can be a regular church attender? You could volunteer, you could be part of a missional community, or whatever you call it at your church, and yet simultaneously be fleeing from the face of God. You could be here, right here, taking notes even, and fleeing from God's presence. Some of you are running from God even though you are steeped in religious activity. See, here we have Jonah, a holy man, a favored man, a famous man, a prophet. And yet, though he may say yes to God, he may have his sideburns perfectly trimmed to the nine, the right garb, the right everything. There's one no in his life. Though he's saying yes to God in this, 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 there's one no. And when you say no once, you're saying no to all. You're still saying no to God. And what I see in the church and what I've seen in my own twisted heart at times is that we do bargaining with God. Hey, God, you know, I'm going to do these good things so that it gives me collateral with you so I can have some buffer to say no here. Are we cool? Right? I'm going to give some tithes here or I'm not going to give tithes so I can do this or I'm going to do these good things. I'm going to serve in childcare. I'm going to do these good things so that I get a little leeway over here. And what we see with Jonah is that his life is a sea of obedience towards Yahweh, but there's a significant pain spot in his heart where he will not give up to Yahweh. And because of that, he has lost the presence and the blessing of God. And this is why some of you have never truly enjoyed the life and power and the joy of the Christian life is that even if you try hard, you read your Bible, you do the religious duties, there's one or more area that you just refuse to let go. And because of that, you sever all intimacy and joy and power from God. And oh, the day that our whole church, every member could literally say, there is nothing he's asked of me that I have not given up. That does not mean we will not sin. It means that there is nothing currently on the table that he has laid down that we are saying no to. Do you know what that feels like, Christian? I was just rejoicing the other day of the amount of joy and freedom I have in my life right now. Though I have trials, though I've sinned, I sinned yesterday, I had an outburst of anger towards one of my children. There is nothing right now, church, that the Lord has asked me to do, as far as I know, that I'm saying no to. And that brings a level of joy and blessing and favor and power that I want all of you to experience if you're not. Do you know what that's like? To have a heart that is just so trusting and saying, yes, Lord, whatever it costs, no matter how hard, it's yes is the answer. And then I'll ask questions after. There's such power and joy in that. And I want that for you. 
Though Jonah is fleeing from the face of God, God is merciful with Jonah and will pursue him. Let's look at verse 4. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. In verse 4, we're introduced to a very important theme we'll see built up throughout this whole book, is that God is sovereign over all spheres and everything. What does sovereignty mean? Very simply put, oversimplify, but it's the authority and power and wisdom that God has over all things. All things. We see that Yahweh is sovereign over the things that man is not sovereign over. Man, no matter how hard we try, we cannot tame the seas. We cannot tame nature or the weather. And God hurls a mighty storm upon Jonah and the ship. Now, when you hear this, that God is throwing a storm upon the ship, I understand that some of you could hear, have a thought come to your mind. This picture of this vengeful, petty God. And you may be thinking, oh, there he goes again. God's always in a bad mood, always vengeful, always angry. And I can understand why you would think that by reading this quickly. But let me welcome you to consider what is God trying to accomplish in throwing this storm upon Jonah in this ship? Jonah is disobeying the command to extend mercy upon a wicked country. God is trying to send Jonah to be a minister of blessing and mercy to millions of people. God's judgment discipline upon Jonah is to wake him up from his spiritual slumber so that he can use him to bring life to not only the nation, but to himself. Because obedience to Jesus, obedience to Yahweh is the only way to life. And so God is calling him to life. God could easily have killed Jonah right then. Jonah, you dare disobey me? I'm speaking to you audibly. Boom, dead. The moment he turns his back on God. And yet, what does God do? God is patience. Listen, God isn't trying to punish Jonah for his sin, but bring Jonah back from his sin. Hear that. God is not trying to punish Jonah from his sin, but bring him back from his sin. He's disciplining him because that's what good fathers do when, when children are being silly. Sometimes we experience hardship in our life, church, and we grumble at God. We question God. We sometimes even curse God. But sometimes, not every time, it's God trying to wake us up from reality to reality so he can give us life. His good discipline is to wake us up because we're so hard-hearted and stubborn. So God isn't trying to punish Jonah from his sin, but he's actually disciplining him to wake him up from his sin. He's doing this to bring life. And so this vengeful Old Testament picture of Yahweh, who's just always angry, is not fully accurate. Yes, he's angry, but he's angry and always proportioned to the sin, always rightly. And he's doing it because he loves and he's trying to bring life to people. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. Real quick, if they're afraid, this is a significant storm. These were seasoned sailors, most likely. They, they have experienced storms before. They know that this is an otherworldly kind of storm. And each cried out to his God. This is 
Interesting, because one of the problems with polytheism is that because there's no clarity on the attributes and identity and the heart of any god, is what they're basically doing is playing a lotto game. Hey, guys, let's figure out which god we ticked off. Hey, pray to, pray to Asheroth. Oh, okay, storm is still going. Nope. All right, let's sacrifice to Poseidon. Maybe that will help. Nope, that didn't work. And, 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 and people do that even to this day. They kind of go down the list of different gods and options and try to figure out which god they ticked off. This is one of the problems with polytheism. But what do they do? And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Why? Because if you read verse 4, the ship, literally the Hebrew, talks about the ship is about to like explode from the inside. The pressures of the waves, the intensity of this tempest is so great that the, the sailors feel like the whole ship is about to explode because the immensity of the waves and the pressure. But what does Jonah do? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. There is directional language in Jonah 1 that's really important. The writer is very intentional. God calls him up to go to Nineveh, but what does he do? He resists and goes down to Tarshish. The more that he disobeys God, the further down he goes. And you'll see that culminated in chapter 2. But now what does he do? He's going down into the heart of the ship instead of going up to life. What is Jonah doing during this deathly storm while all the other sailors are fighting for their lives? He's sleeping. Is there anybody here that you think would be sleeping in the midst of a storm? No. You don't have to point at them, wives. We don't know why he's sleeping, but I do believe that there's a spiritual representation of Jonah's spiritual slumber. He's asleep to reality. He's ignoring God. You know, sometimes when we want to ignore the pain inside of disobedience, the shame that we feel, we find escapes, whether it's through addictions. And some of us, we escape through sleeping. Sleep away our problems. Avoid God. Jonah's asleep to reality. Verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, are you crazy? You're sleeping when we're about to die? And listen to this words. Arise, call out to your God. Does that sound familiar? Arise. It's the same language from Yahweh in the first few verses. Kum, lek, arise, go, and karah, cry out. Jonah must have been startled awake because he's trying to avoid and run away from the God of the universe who's God over seas and land and everything, and yet he can't even sleep without being awakened by a pagan sailor saying the same words as his God. Get up, go, cry out. Wherever Jonah goes, Yahweh is pursuing him. He says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish, which is another problem with polytheism. If you don't have a clarity about who God is and letting God tell you what he's like, you just guess, I don't know what God's like. I don't know what he likes and what he would say to me. He's calling him out to pray, but yet Jonah won't pray. Why won't Jonah pray? Because there's nothing to say. Just like if you have a significant fissure in a relationship with someone, until that issue is dealt with, what is there to talk about? He doesn't want to obey Yahweh, and so therefore he's not going to say anything. He's not going to pray. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know 
on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. The sailors are essentially using, like, pulling straws or, to, or, or dice. And God is sovereignly using his power and authority over all things, controlling and making sure that Jonah is exposed. Now, imagine this scene. A bunch of hardened sailors who are freaked out for their lives crowd around Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Right? Can you imagine the scene? All of them are like gathering around him. Hey, what, what you about, Jonah? Why is this happening? What have you done? Why is this chaos happening to us? Now listen to the answer that Jonah gives. I think there's a lot to learn from it. Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This word fear is not our typical English word for fear. It's loaded with senses of honor and awe and worship and fear. And we're going to see that more and more throughout the book of Jonah, especially next week. But let me ask you a question. Up to this point, reading this text with me, do you believe that Jonah fears Yahweh? Does it look like his life fears Yahweh? See, if the first thought many of you have is, you hypocrite, Jonah, I can't believe you to say that you fear Yahweh. Jonah, you don't worship or fear Yahweh. But that's the power of this book, the sneaky power of this book. It draws out your own judgments in order to reveal your own heart. I have a quote for you on the screen. I love how Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says it. Is it up there? The very fact that you are feeling superior to Jonah, you are falling into his trap. Because that's what he's doing with this story, is holding a mirror right up to your face and saying, oh, really, you've never had a contradiction between what you say you believe and how you actually live? Really, you're superior to Jonah? Congratulations. You also are asleep at the wheel if you believe that about yourself. See, this book... It's not just about Jonah, it's about us. It's a mirror to our souls. It regularly, as you go throughout the chapters, will shine a light into our very own hypocritical hearts. And it's a gift for us. And you will miss the book and the power of the book if you merely observe it from a third party pointing and looking upon it. God has something to reveal to you the next four weeks as we're journeying through this book. The question is, will you hear it? Will you hear it? Let's look back at the text. What does Jonah say in response to these answers? Jonah first identifies himself as what? What do he say? A Hebrew, then a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, this may be some speculation, but in light of what we saw in 2 Kings about his patriotic kind of prioritization, and if you read chapter 3 and 4... I believe that this may suggest that Jonah's identity is first and foremost a Hebrew over a worshiper of Yahweh. Throughout his life, you're going to see that, that he prioritized love of country over love of God. And sadly, I've seen this in our country. It's one of the reasons why we have eviscerated, as Christians in America, our public witness. We have mixed love of country for love of Jesus. 
And though they can work together, together, there is a priority. And I love America. I am grateful for being here. I was born in California X amount of years ago. I'm grateful to be an American citizen, truly. And yet, my love for country is not even close to my love for Jesus. Not even comparable. And throughout the book, we see Jonah's religion as being an Israelite, often over a worshiper of Yahweh. And this is very dangerous for us because we, we have this in our culture. We even laugh about it, right? right? Like someone says, hey, uh, you talk to an Irish. Uh, uh, what, what are you? And, and they're Irish, so of course they're what? What are they? I'm Catholic because I'm Irish, right? And, and, and no offense here, but uh, what are you uh, if you are Swedish? Swede. Swede. Lutheran, right? And obviously these are generalizations, but they're often true. Uh, our culture precedes our affection. Our culture precedes our devotion. So the question for all of us to consider is this. Does Jesus influence and direct how you think through and define your culture, politics, and values? Or, listen, does your culture influence and direct how you think about Jesus? That's super important. Because if you grew up in a Christian home, you grew up in a culture, you can easily accept the claims of Christ and accept this as God's word, and functionally your heart is far because you are just adapting to the culture to survive relationally. I press on to you. Are you letting this dictate your culture and values, or are you letting your culture and your values, your family origin of history, your family values, to dictate what this says? It's very hard to dis disentangle our hearts and understand that. Let's go back to the text, and we're going to finish with verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Apparently there was some sort of conversation they had with Jonah before. What is astounding here is that something we're going to see throughout the book of Jonah is that Jonah is asleep to reality, and yet all those who don't know God are more awake than he is. Do you realize what you've done, Jonah? You're running away from the God of the land and sea on a boat. You've doomed us with your disobedience, which is really important for us to put a little pin in and remember. One of the lies of our culture is that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt people and it makes you happy. One of the lies of sin is that our sin can be siloed and won't affect people. But as Pastor Daniel preached so well last week, our sin always affects others. Always does. And the lie is that we can just keep the secret in between you and me. Sam, no one will know. Just do other good things. Don't do it again. You can just keep it secret. Jonah has, in his obstinance and his disobedience has threatened the lives of all of these sailors. Now, I'm going to abruptly end here. We're going to go further into this book. I'm not going to tie a tiny uh, pretty bow right now. We're going to build upon these themes throughout the week or the weeks. But let me end with this. We miss this point, the point of this book, as I've mentioned, if we're looking at it from afar. But Jonah is a mirror to us. And one of the questions you have to ask in light of the main emphasis of this passage today is that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And the right question for all of us to ask this morning is, am I? Am I fleeing from the presence of the Lord? 
Am I turning from his face? Listen, if you're not enjoying the favor, the vitality of God's presence, may I suggest it is possible that you're the one who moved and not God. May I further suggest that if your Christian life is joyless and powerless, it's likely sometime in your life, maybe a long time ago or maybe right now, you said no to God and you put a stake down in the ground. This one area, God, you cannot have. And that completely sapped all of your vitality in your relationship with God. Isn't that so logical when you think about it, if we actually think that God is in a relationship with us? Like, imagine if I said that to my wife, Joanna. Joanna, you can have everything of my heart, but this one relationship with this one girl from high school, you can't have that. What will that do with every single ounce of our relationship? It would infect it all, would it not? We can't merely silo areas of disobedience and rebellion towards God and act like it's not an infectious poison that goes through every ounce of our body in our relationship with God. So here's a question. What is your Nineveh that God is calling you to? What is your Nineveh in your life that God has called you to and you said, no, I'm going the opposite direction and hardened your heart towards him? Fleed, fled from the face of God. Maybe it's a relationship, your sexuality, money, a career, an addiction, unforgiveness that you cannot let go. Maybe the Lord has called you to the mission field, either in your neighborhood or your workplace, or maybe in Scotland like Beth, and you said, no, God, I'll do anything but that. I love my things too much or my family. I need to be near my family. I need my family's everything. I can't leave my family. Are you running from his face this morning, church? Why would you run from life? Know this, that God is running after you. The fact that you're hearing my words is evidence that God loves you and he's being merciful to you, warning you and trying to call you back to life in him. Are you spiritually asleep this morning? Why stay asleep to reality? God has a garden full of life for you when you're awake. As we journey through this book, we're also going to see how much we are like Jonah. But... Jesus, as we'll see, is the remedy to all of us Jonas. Let me end with this. Can any of you here think of someone else who was sleeping on a boat? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus was asleep on a boat once too. And I'm not saying that Jonah is talking about Jesus here. But I think it makes us think about how much better Jesus is. How good news that is for our hearts. Jonah is sleeping to escape and ignore reality while Jesus is sleeping at peace because he's sitting in the presence and the pleasure and the will of God. While Jonah gets up scared from, for his life, Jesus wakes up, is, in at peace, is at peace and calms his disciples and the storms down with just a word. Unlike Jonah who runs from his enemies, Jesus doesn't run from his enemies but runs towards his enemies. Unlike Jonah, who disobeys God and thinks he knows better, Jesus obeys his Father even when it's hard and says, your will be done, not mine. Unlike Jonah, who turns his face from God, Jesus does not turn his face from God, but turns his face towards the wrath of God so that us sinners who trust in Jesus could have peace with God. That's the Jesus that this book will ultimately point to and the Jesus that you and I need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this special book. And I do, I know I said a lot of things, and I say, and I ask that the things that you wanted us to hear would 
ring true to the depths of our being. And if there's anything that I said that was not accurately representing your word, let no one hear it. But all that is true, let it deeply shape and form us and call us to response. Bring us out of sleep, Lord. Bring us out of a hardness of hearts. Help us lay down our own wisdom for your wisdom, God. If there's any no in our life that we're holding on to that is destroying everything in our relationship with you, Lord, expose it and give us your strength by your spirit to turn from it so we can behold you. Help us turn from our sin to turn towards you. Do the mighty work now in this gathering. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen.